From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking about something that I'm sure annoys people in every municipality, every city in the province. And that is when you are walking around and you see litter, things that people have just thrown to the ground. Don't bother putting in a garbage can. And if someone was to ask you, what is the number one item that is discarded on the street? What would you say? If your answer is cigarette butts, you would be correct. Well, that is something the group Downtown Van has been focusing on, picking up cigarette butts to make a point and show just how much cigarette butt, how much litter there is on Vancouver streets. Well, Joshua Davidson is the Director of Operations with Downtown Van and joins us now to talk more about this. Joshua, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. This is a lot of garbage, cigarette butts specifically. How much have you and your crews collected? So over three weeks, the downtown van clean team, which is eight members, um, have collected 75 pounds of cigarette butts. Um, And now if you think about how light a cigarette butt is, especially we've had nice weather, so it's not damp or or wet, that is a lot of cigarette butts in just 90 blocks of downtown. Are you able to describe what does that even look like physically? Like you said, these aren't wet. These are uh, collected. So how how many bags is that or what does that look like? Oh, I mean, it was multiple bags. We've um, uh, come by uh, the art gallery, the North Plaza. Um, We have a glass receptacle. It is almost full to the top. It is gray. It is like dirty. And we've had to seal it shut because the smell is absolutely awful. And uh, I would imagine you're getting a lot of response from people who are seeing this and getting that visual. Yeah, we have a lot of people walking by, uh, people, people that smoke themselves that are just disgusted about, uh, uh, you know, just the visual. You know, this is an awareness piece, but it's also an educative piece. I think uh, it, people think that by dropping the cigarette butts, they're made of paper, they'll wash away or disintegrate. The average cigarette butt takes 25 years to decompose and is made of toxins and plastic. So it really isn't just a drop and it's gone. Um, another big thing is that people uh, drop them, they end up in the, in the water system. We are surrounded by natural beauty in Vancouver. Uh, these butts end up in the water and they are seriously harmful to aquatic life. So, you know, we're, we're showing this in the glass, glass receptacle to, you know, that shock factor, but also to educate people, you know, you can't just be dropping them on the street. Right. And why is it, do you think, that uh, we're, we're seeing this? And I know your numbers uh, talked about the fact that cigarette butts are the, the number one most littered item in the city. And, and it does seem to be like a different mindset of hopefully, I mean, you wouldn't throw uh, a cup or you wouldn't just throw garbage on the street. But for some reason, it, it seems to be people throw cigarette butts and don't really think about it. Absolutely. And I think I think that's the piece. I don't I'd like to believe that most people are not dropping them and just because they don't care. I, I think many people are dropping them because they don't realize that they're not just disintegrating and decomposing within a day. Um, I think another big thing is that still a lot of people smoke and, um, and maybe don't know the proper ways to dispose of cigarettes. We also are finding that with vaping on the rise, our clean team members are finding a lot of disposable vapes lately. Not enough to maybe show in a receptacle, but that's probably the next uh, project that we're going we're gonna to launch. So the, the actual plastic containers, the, the plastic vapes? Yeah, the plastic vapes. You know, um, the cheaper ones are the disposable ones that are kind of like a one-time use. 
and we're finding a lot of them are just being discarded. Uh, I think a lot of people also don't know how to dispose of the, the, the vapes, and I'm, I'm, I don't have the answer either. You know, it's got a battery in it, whether it needs to be recycled. So I think this is the next awareness project. When we look at the cigarette butts, or, or you talk about again, so sorry, how many blocks were the, were the 75 pounds of cigarette butts collected from? So the downtown Vancouver BIA, downtown Van, we, we, um, we managed 90 blocks of downtown core. So it was the majority of those blocks that our clean team will have been going through. But it's also a good reminder, our, you know, our downtown clean team works seven days a week, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. But they also do graffiti removal, microcleaning, sweeping, large removals of like cardboard. So although they were focused on the cigarette butts and we collected them rather than disposing of them, um, it, this was... They also did other jobs on top of their, you know, their regular day to day. So I, you know, if, if we primarily focused only on cigarette butts, I'd hate to think how many would catch. Hmm. And not again, again, not that there's a, an excuse for it so, or, or making sense of throwing cigarette butts on the ground. But do you think, is it possible, like you said about proper disposal, are people reluctant to put them in the garbage because they're afraid maybe a fire would start or are they unclear on how to properly dispose of them? I think it's probably a mixture of everything, um, and uh, perhaps maybe they're not close enough to uh, a trash can to be able to put them out. We're, we're, you know, we're here with, um, with some pocket ashtrays uh, that the city provided to us. Um, they're fire retardant. You can carry them around with you. If you can't find a trash can, you can just put them out in there and then empty of the cigarettes later. Um, and I think that's a, that's a big piece as well. I know in, in some parts of the city, I think maybe it was a pilot project, there were the actual metal receptacles specifically for cigarette butts. Does it, does it look like or might it help out if there were more of those available, do you think? I think that definitely would be would be helpful. We we see them, you know, around the really busy areas like some of the uh, train stations, some of the hotels, um, and it's great and they're used. I think that you know other cities have those kind of fun receptacles where you can uh, kind of put your cigarette butt and uh, like answer a question, and it shows how many cigarette butts uh, you know answering each question. You know, different things like that, an incentive for people to easily discard of them. I think that's the big piece. Um, you know, we we launched we actually launched the first of this pilot project in 2019. We had six clean team members um, out for a full month, and they collect, collected 57 pounds of uh, cigarette butts. This year, we have eight members, so two, two more clean team members, but we've only been out for three weeks, and we've collected 75. We actually thought we would see a reduction because it's seemingly less people are smoking, so we were actually surprised that the number had increased from 2019. I was a bit surprised by that, too, for exactly that reason, that when we look at the statistics of people that smoke, B.C. generally has the smaller percentage and, and not as many. Oh. And you would think that. But but clearly the ones that are smoking are throwing those butts on the ground. Absolutely. And, you know, um, the city of Vancouver provided us that there approximately one million cigarette butts are littered in Vancouver every single day. A million cigarette butts. I mean, that that number is absolutely astonishing. Um, so, you know, although we were surprised at 75 pounds, I suppose the, the data shows that we shouldn't be. No. Um, and I know this is part of, of showing this uh, this amount, the 75 pounds of, of cigarette butts to educate people to, to make that visual. Do we need more, do you think, though, than education in that littering? Uh, do we need to get to the point where people are ticketed for littering? You know, I'm not sure about the ticketing situation. I know that other cities do it, but um, I think that if we keep continuing to talk about it, people want, we live in a beautiful city, people want to keep it beautiful. And, you know, cleanliness is safety and safety is cleanliness. And if downtown just isn't clean, it doesn't feel as safe. And I think that's one of the big messages. We want to ensure that downtown is a clean and safe place for 
the visitors, residents and workers. Right. And and like you said, too, it's not just throwing a piece of paper on the ground and with these butts going into the, the storm drains and into the to, to the water system, uh, that these are very toxic and these are not good for the environment. Absolutely not. I mean, you uh, you look down at the, the storm drains in Vancouver and, the ha- you know, it has a little fish symbol on it and it says into the sea. Um, you know, the water very clearly states that it goes right into the ocean. So by dropping them, it's going into aquatic life. It's going, you know, right where we're, where we, we love the beauty that we're surrounded by so much. And we're, you know, slowly destroying it with, with things like this. Uh, you mentioned so some free pocket ashtrays are being handed out for people walking by today. Uh, you also mentioned that people could come and see it. So sorry, how long are you going to be set up on the north side of the art gallery? So we're going to be on the north side of the art gallery between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. Um, so, yeah, come down. You can't miss us. We've got a big tent. You've got that smelly, ugly receptacle of 75 pounds worth of cigarette butts. We also have all of our downtown clean team and safety ambassadors handing out the, 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 the pocket ashtrays. And, um, yeah, come hear some stats from us. It's, um, it's shocking, and it should be. Joshua, thank you for this. I know it's very busy with the setup at the art gallery. So thanks so much for taking some time and talking more about this. Thanks a lot, Jill. Well, we have talked a lot about housing on this program earlier this week. We heard from Vancouver's Mayor Ken Sim talking about his ideas, his plans coming to council to jumpstart housing in the city of Vancouver, trying to reduce some of the red tape to speed up the permitting process. All welcome suggestions when it comes to getting more housing, more density, especially given the ambitious immigration targets of the federal government. But what does it look like if we go back and look at housing completions and how those compare to population growth in Canada? Well, a new study shows exactly what those numbers look like. And joining me now to talk more about it is Joseph Filipowicz, a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. Joseph, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for doing this. Uh, This is a new uh, study. It is called Canada's Growing Housing Gap, Comparing Population Growth and Housing Completions in Canada, 1972 to 2022. So this is taking a a really big snapshot of what housing has looked like. What has the trend been as far as population growth and housing starts? Well, most Canadians and and certainly your, your listeners are painfully aware of the country's housing shortage. And and this analysis shows that the gap between demand and supply is actually growing, not shrinking. So so just last year, Canada's population grew by just over a million people, uh, but we only built about 220,000 homes. And that's 220,000 homes for the entire country? Yes, that's all of Canada. That number, when I first saw that number, I, I thought I was looking at it wrong because it, it sounded to me that that seems like a number that we would think of that maybe a provincial number. That, that, is, that seems like a really low number for the entire country. Well, and that's actually remarkably high by, by recent standards. Very seldom in the last 20, 30 years have we built more than 200,000 homes in, in one year. And, and just for context for, for your listeners, um, 220,000 homes is roughly a city the size of, of Hamilton, Ontario, maybe maybe Surrey in British Columbia. But but the population is growing by roughly the, the size of the city of Ottawa. 
Hmm. So with those numbers, and I, I know this report also takes a look back and, and again, looking over the years, saying nationally, uh, one of the findings, one of the conclusions of this, that Canada has yet to build more homes annually than it did in the 70s. So what was happening? Was it because the population wasn't growing as fast or why was why was it closer to the same number? Houses were built for numbers of people in, in, in the 70s, but not now. Well, there, there's a whole bunch of, of factors at play, and and what we find is that um, the the you know the number of homes being built was a lot closer to the number of, of people coming in. So so we we built more homes than we do now. Um, it was very it was very typical to have a year where more than two hundred thousand homes were built, but it was also unusual for there to be more than about three hundred thousand people uh, per year, uh, additional people per year, in, in, in population growth. So it was a lot closer to one to one, whereas in, in 2022, what we saw was 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 this gap grow to almost five uh, five people per per new home. So, um, you know, that's that's an enormous difference, and and uh, it's only been getting wider in, in the last five years, especially. Uh, but does it? Do we have an uh, an answer though? Why is it? Is it the cost of housing? Is it that we are, are bringing more people to Canada? More people want to come here, or or governments just aren't aren't looking at this and, and aren't addressing it? That we're seeing this gap get bigger and bigger. Well, at its root, root the gap is caused by by you know a whole host of factors. But governments, at, at the end of the day, aren't communicating the, the three levels of government. We're we're now in a situation where the federal government has the most direct control over housing demand, uh, notably through through immigration policy, while provinces and municipalities have the most direct control over housing supply. And unfortunately, they don't coordinate all that much. Right. And we've we've talked a lot so, or heard a lot of concerns as well about if we look back in, in those earlier years when the federal government was involved in things like co-op housing and was more involved in the housing numbers. Is it because they've pulled away from that and stopped stopped building? Well, it's certainly it certainly played a role, but I think at its peak, about uh, the, the federal government and, and all governments in Canada, um, from from recollection, were were uh, behind about ten percent of housing starts at really at their peak of, of funding uh, non market housing, including co ops, etc. Uh, now that's a lot. That would be like them building about twenty thousand units a year, and they don't do that anymore. But twenty thousand units is still just ten percent of two hundred thousand. Like the vast, vast, vast majority of this is coming from. The private market. It comes from, you know, purpose-built rental development, from single-family homes, from, from all types of development. And 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 really, I think what we've seen here is that it's it's a lot harder to build now than it was back then. And there's again, there's a whole bunch of reasons. All governments are responsible, but but on the supply side, it's especially local and provincial governments. When we look specifically at the findings, some of the conclusions looking at British Columbia, uh, again, this this finding that, yes, B.C. has seen a relatively high population growth. Uh, we saw that through the 80s, through the early 90s. Uh, we've seen that in other provinces as well. Uh, before 2022, the largest single year increase to B.C.'s population was 1994. So a pretty big gap there. But we also saw a, a lot of housing completions in 1993. So again, it looks like BC is, is on trend with what we're seeing in the rest of the country as well, in that there used to be very little difference between population growth and housing, and that gap as well in, in BC has also become quite big. Well, you're, you're right to point that out because it's actually unique in Canada. Uh, no other province was able to build more homes uh, than it did in the 1970s, other than British Columbia, notably in the 1990s. 
So, um, you know, British Columbia experienced very, very strong population growth in the 1990s. And in fact, uh, they've only just recently in 2022 um, uh, um, grown faster than during the 1990s. But the difference between the main difference between now and, and the 1990s is that is that housing supply kept up. Right. And and but do we know why we we've saw that shift? Is it similar to what you, you said was happening elsewhere in the country or why did we see B.C. doing kind of well when it came to, to keeping up to then falling off? And, and again, that gap growing. Well, it's a, it's a great question. I think it deserves its own its own report. I, uh, I, I would love to know what was going on on the ground and, and how easy it was, for example, to get a building permit in the mid 1990s compared to now. I know there were major projects. Uh, going on, uh, a lot of redevelopment going on in the years following the 1986 Expo. And, and, and I'd be curious to know if, if most of this, these numbers are being driven by, by building happening in, in central Vancouver or, or if we're talking about, you know, a province wide. So th- these are really important questions that I think deserve a, a lot closer uh, uh, analysis. What do you think happens then or what should we be bracing for if we don't take a look at this gap and we continue again with pretty ambitious immigration numbers coming from the federal government? If there simply isn't the housing and there isn't a plan to build that housing, it sounds like we're in store for even though we've been talking so much and we've been hearing from government officials that they're looking at this and trying to tackle this. It sounds like it's going to get worse. Well, certainly without closing the wide and, and, and unfortunately growing gap between housing demand and, and housing supply, housing costs are going to continue to rise. It's, it's as simple as that, and it's a hard reality for, for a lot of folks today. And when we and housing prices, do, do you th- suggest or does it look like in, in every kind of whether we're talking rental, whether we're talking uh, market housing uh, across the board? Well, well, scarcity, you know, um, uh, an imbalance between supply and demand really, really uh, can manifest itself in any number of ways. But certainly high rents is, is probably the, the, the first place you'll see that uh, manifest itself. But then also in, 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 in the um, in the, uh, the home purchasing market, certainly, um, even if it's even if home prices themselves don't go up. I mean, what we've seen today is is, is that affordability still still can be eroded if, if interest rates go up just because. Um, you know, uh, 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 people have to pay more in, in mortgages, et cetera. So in any case, the, the scarcity hits people, it hits people in the pocketbook and it hits them hard. And I think that a lot of Canadians are, are really struggling with that right now. And, and, and unfortunately, unless we can get to come to grips with this, with this enormous gap between the amount of homes that, that we build and the amount that we need, um, I think it can only get worse. Hmm. And just to go back to something you mentioned, Joseph, and in 1986, people who were in Vancouver will remember uh, a big portion of False Creek, the Expo lands, which were pretty industrial kind, and, and not a lot of housing there at all. Uh, a huge, huge amount of development that took place there. Is it is it geography, do you think, too, that's playing a big factor in that there isn't the, the land available, especially in the downtown cores of cities? And in some cases, there's a reluctance to build up. There's a reluctance for density? Is it a lack of space or a lack of, of kind of creative thinking when it comes to building that housing? Well, certainly if, if, uh, if, if, <laughs> if cities like Vancouver want to add homes, there is no shortage of room to do that. It just takes, as you, as you mentioned, a lot of creativity. Um, there are other cities that are far more dense. We did research on this back in 2018, and, and we'll probably do some more in, in, the, in the months and years to come. Because it, you know places like like uh, like New York, not even not even all of New York. Let's just talk about Brooklyn, for example, which is not necessarily known for for skyscrapers, are still several times 
as dense as, as, as places like Toronto and Vancouver. So, you know, uh, there's plenty of room for, for Vancouver, especially it's low density, uh, single detached neighborhoods to add a lot more housing. If, if, you know, if folks want it, right. If, if Vancouverites are, are, are willing to, to see their city transform in that kind of a way, well, there's certainly, there's certainly plenty of room to do it. Well, it's uh, very interesting numbers in this report, Joseph, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, Lytton residents who have been waiting and have been anxious about rebuilding are now being told they might have to worry about archaeological work costs and they are still waiting to find out when serious rebuilding is going to take place. Joining me now is Lorna Fandrich, the owner of the Lytton Chinese History Museum. Lorna, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, good afternoon, Jill. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you uh, for doing this. Uh, I know uh, I want to talk to you about the rally and what is being planned. And I know there's limited information about the archaeological fees that, that could be given to or passed on to residents. Uh, I know the mayor, uh, uh, Denise, has been, Denise O'Connor, has been talking about this. Have you been told much about the, the cost of the archaeological digs and how that might, though, be passed on to residents? Yeah, I haven't been told that personally. I was just um, witness to that at the council meeting where one of the citizens um, of Lytton was told that it would be about $20,000 to have her services put into her house. That's water and sewer. You have to dig a trench, and then they would require two um, AEW people to stand there and watch to make sure there weren't any artifacts present. And so that was the fee that they, that she was quoted for doing these two necessary trenches into her into her house. Which I'm guessing probably came as a bit of a surprise that the fee was going to be that high to do that. Yeah, I think that's what has been the, basically the catalyst for this um, protest or rally that we're having on next Wednesday. And that's because we already have so many um, encumbrances to rebuilding and then to think that we have to come up with another 20,000, which won't be covered by insurance and obviously isn't covered by the province or the federal government right now. Uh, I think that got a lot of people into panic mode. The delays themselves, that's been kind of the elephant in the room for a long time um, with the archaeology um, work, and that's because it hasn't been very transparent and it keeps being delayed. Um, I can't speak to the population in general, but I could give you a brief example of what's happened at my museum, if you wish. Yeah, please do. Um, so um, we we heard that the AEW would be doing the archaeology studies in May of 22. And they did my museum in October of that year, I believe. And then I waited till February of 23 when they said to, that we could apply online and they would send us a report within two weeks. Well, something happened to that in the interim and then I finally got my report on August 19th. The reason that's an issue for my museum is I was really hoping to start building this fall and have um, the foundations at least in before freeze-up, which looks unlikely now because of the delays. Now, having said that, the report says that there were no obvious um, archaeological pieces on my property, so that isn't stopping me. Obviously, when I redig the basement, I'll have to have an observer then. 
I'm assuming I'll be charged for that at that time. The problem with this, with every individual business and homeowner, is that until we find out where the um, artifacts were found on our property, we can't we can't build and we can't plan to build. And that's um, because if it's in the center of the property, you aren't allowed to disturb that. So then you would be unable to um, build your building on on my building if they would have found it anywhere within 12 um, feet of each property line, I wouldn't be able to rebuild the the building. So that's been a a major delay that held up having our design um, drawn because we don't know how the building is going to fit on the lot. Um, So for me, I'm in that process now. For people that um, received a report that they found um, pieces on their site, um, I'll just quote directly one I know about, that's the Lytton Legion because I'm a director on that, so I can say. But what happened there is we were waiting um, to have plans drawn to situate the new building, which will be smaller than our old one because of insurance reasons. But we were waiting to see where to situate it on the lot. We were told that there were artifacts found on the site. And then we still haven't had any official notification of where those artifacts were found, which means we can't plan to put the building on the lot until we hear that. So those are uh, the delays that businesses are going through. Homeowners who are desperate now to get houses here, especially those that are still living in hotels, um, they see this archaeological thing as being, you know, a big hold up to what we're doing. And I and and so I won't ramble on. I'm sorry, but the only other thing is, I I think Lytton is a different example than most other communities. We're not sure why we've had all these delays and all of these problems going forward, not just with the archaeology um, component of it, but other parts of it. And will that be happening in the other communities that had fires this year? Right. And uh, you're not rambling at all. And uh, I appreciate that you, you've joined us to talk more about this because I know the mayor put out a statement as well and, and being respectful of archaeology, being re- respectful of, of what is potentially and what has been found at some of these sites. But these also were all sites where your museum was, where homes were. These were sites that had buildings on them. And and like the mayor said in her statement, it feels like Lytton has become an archaeology project, not a rebuild project. And potentially, uh, from the way you've described it, potentially that it could mean nothing gets rebuilt, couldn't it? Well, I think in the end... um uh, buildings will reappear here because there will be some lots like mine um, that didn't have samples found on it. Um, the The problem is the delay. So the the longer the delay, um, some of the business, I think, have given up on Lytton and just took their insurance money and went somewhere else. Um, some of the homeowners, a few of them, have passed away um, in this interim because they were elderly. But also some of them are are just waiting to find out whether they can start putting this all in motion. And the problem is, if we don't start this within the next month, then we're waiting till March or April in the spring when the ground isn't frozen any longer. So I think that's, you know, people are getting a little bit panicky about the delays. Uh, we feel like it's unfair um, that that we've been going through all of this and, you know, the other communities have not. I didn't have to go through any of this when I built the museum in 2017. Um, 
so uh, yeah, it, it's been difficult and um, businesses are one thing that I, I feel badly for the homeowners. And and so you built in 2017, though, and like you said, not mm-hmm. not having to go through this process then. So have has anyone explained why that has changed and why what was what was a, a different process in 2017? Why that process isn't clearly isn't what's happening this time? Yeah, I think um, Heritage BC could probably answer that um, more accurately for you. But it seems to me that what happened is because the whole town. we'd each need to apply for a permit to build, it seems. In this case, that's what we were required to do. Then that would have been very um, lengthy. So um, the Heritage BC or the provincial government decided they'd have one blanket um, permit for the whole town to be done. So that's one issue that probably saved each of us um, a bundle of money having it done that way. But, it, but it's the delays that are the problem and the lack of transparency. We're not even told what they find on our lots if there's something there. Hmm. Um, we're, we, when we ask that, they keep telling us the information is too sensitive, whatever that means. And so we, we don't know why we're being um, singled out for this you know, great degree of observance here. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't know. No, that's that's fine. Uh, the rally itself uh, that's happening on the 18th. Do you ha- do you have an idea on how many people might be coming out and kind of the mood that is going to be there? Well, I think it's, it's uh, uh, not particularly a mood of anger, but more of hope that something that our voices will be heard. I think we're a bit worried that people are tired of hearing about Lytton in the news. They think we've already started rebuilding because we were given federal and provincial funds. So there hasn't been one one building put up yet, nor one building permit put out. But I think with the people gathering together, they, they just want to say that we are in a desperate situation and we want things to move forward. We want to have our community. Everybody wants to be back here, even the people who didn't lose their homes on the reserves that are near us. They want their community back. That's why we live in this small town. Um, in my family, we lost my museum. My daughter lost her coffee shop art store, and two of our sons lost their homes. Hmm. And and we'd like to be back. We'd like to uh, be part of this community again. Luckily, our personal home did not burn. Our family business, which is Kamsheen Rafting Resort, had about uh, $1.5 million worth of damage from this fire. So um, we feel this strongly. And having said that, but I still, I think that we are fortunate because we kept our home and because we could move ahead with our family business. Many people don't have either of those options. Right. And like you said, too, it's it's been more than two years since that fire. And I think if you if you asked people uh, if they if they thought that it had rebuilt or there had been work done, most people would make the assumption, well, it's been more than two years. Of course, there's been work done. Yeah, there hasn't there hasn't been any done. They're still doing remediation, which means that they're still um, flattening the ground, putting gravel on and packing it um, so that uh, my understanding is that so work vehicles can actually drive on it and not disturb anything, uh, archaeological sites that are below that level so that we could start building. And the one question you asked about how many people may attend the the rally, we're hoping that the community will turn out you know there's 
uh, I don't know, 2,500 people in the immediate area. Uh, I, I can't anticipate that too many people will drive hours from where they're living now to come back. But the other, um, I mean, we're hopeful. But the other thing, a lot of people are reticent to talk to the media and um, like they're shy about it. That's the only reason. And so in some ways, we may lose some people just for that reason. But I think um, because it is a chance for us to all band together, I'm hopeful that lots of people will come. Well, we will uh, certainly uh, be checking in on the day. Lorna, I appreciate so much you joining the show today and talking more about this. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, we have heard from Vancouver's Mayor Ken Sim holding a news conference yesterday talking about his plan to accelerate housing builds to make it easier to build certain types of housing, more density in some neighbourhoods, all of this to address the city's housing crisis. Uh, He talked about the seven items in the plan that would give clear direction to city staff to prioritize the construction of new housing in the city, as well also stepping up enforcement on short-term rentals, such as Airbnb. Well, will this actually make a difference? Joining me now is Aaron Jasper, real estate agent with Royal LePage Sussex, and also somebody who's been involved in local and civic government. Aaron, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Jill. When you look at this plan, and uh, a lot of it was were things that we already knew that Mayor Ken Sim was was planning to do. Uh, part of it, uh, his campaign promises. Uh, but looking at this plan, the seven action items, uh, making uh, villages more purpose built, rentals. Uh, what do you see in this? As as is this a plan that could work? Well, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I applaud the mayor uh, for for coming out and speaking to this, that you're making this a priority because it, it is a priority. Um, we are really, I mean, every city, but Vancouver, I, I think is, like, I can see it firsthand. We are in a real jam here in terms of, of providing affordable housing. You know, the, the concern I have, and I, and I, I guess in terms of the, the points you listed, I think are great. Uh, the fact that we're trying to, there's a city that want to expedite, I think is good. You don't need more studies and, uh, you know, consultation, I think, uh, can really can really slow the process down. I, and I don't envy the mayor and council for, for some of the trade-offs that they may have to consider. You know, the obviously, if, if the mayor and council were going to go for higher density, but mostly condos, you know, the challenge is, you know, those, those condos, uh, would they be affordable? You know, um, probably 60% of those units at any kind of condo development would be purchased by investors, who in turn are going to go and rent them. Well, obviously, the the property owner wants to be able to, to charge as much rent as possible to cover their costs. So you can't blame them from that. But again, is that going to be an affordable option for someone who's looking to rent? Uh, not as much as someone who has the option of renting in a purpose-built rental building. Um, but there, there's some challenges. Uh, I know in the past, and I, I can't speak to sort of more current years, but in the past, to incentivize developers to get away from the condos to go more to purpose-built, there were some trade-offs, right? The, the development cost levies. These are the, the monies that would be used to do infrastructure, uh, utilities upgrades, infrastructure upgrades for those developments. Well, those would have been reduced or waived uh, as an incentive to a developer. Um, the community costs, uh, the community amenity contributions, right? The CACs, which are the monies that uh, go to and make improvements to pools, community centers, and parks. Well, often those were waived to incentivize the, the developer to ensure that a percentage of the units were, were affordable, 
in terms of the rental allowance. So from a perspective of, of, of more affordability, the purpose built is a way to go. But the trade-off is the city then almost, uh, you know, uh, puts themselves in a bind when it comes to the, the, the badly needed infrastructure monies to, to not only just maintain what we have, but to improve for the, the growing population over the next several decades. Right. And that's certainly been one of the issues, even looking at infrastructure and who's going to pay for upgrades when it comes to water systems and sewers and, and all of those things that are desperately needed, especially if there is going to be all of this building. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I used to live in the West End and I can tell you uh, it's one of the densest neighborhoods in North America. And, you know, lots of families down there and, and doing the condo living. But it was a great place to live. You know, and yeah, it's a little different than living in a single family neighborhood. But the quality of life was no was no worse. Um, it's it's a different lifestyle, and and I think a lot of people, especially younger families just getting started, are are willing to to take on that lifestyle or are prepared to live in a condo or an apartment. And maybe you know whether it's a condo or an apartment, they're they're willing to do it. But at the end of the day, uh, yeah, affordability is important, and you know people still want to be able to take their kids to swimming lessons. You know they still want to be able to the quality of life. We we're going to build a. a fast track and build tons and tons of units, which we need desperately. But on that other side of the equation, how are we going to pay for the the, the upgrades to the basic infrastructure, but also all of the, the important community amenities that, that are important to what really, as I think, lent Vancouver or made Vancouver such a, a wonderful place to live. Uh, there's been a lot of talk lately as well, also looking at, at cities that are really trying to build up, especially around transit centers and around transit stations and make it for people. So it's still, it's not going to be cheap, but maybe you can get into one of those condos or one of those units and maybe it only works if you don't need to have a vehicle because then you're you're living close to the transit station. And it also seems like there, there's a bit more support for building higher in those areas because it, it seems like there is so much pushback when you try and put those bigger towers in places maybe that haven't had them in the past. Do, do you think is that part of, of the solution? What we should, we should be looking at? I think so. I think the mayor, mayor and council. I mean, I I think back to conversations I had with with my colleagues of mine that were on council, uh, Raymond Louie, Carrie Jang, a couple of good friends of mine, and, and many conversations. I mean, and and watching watching the public hearings and and the beating that the council would take from neighbors because uh, and we're, we're even necessarily talking towers where maybe they wanted to put in some stacked townhouses. You know, the Grandview Woodlands plan had to be watered down quite a bit from the original density. Like we're talking middle mile density and the neighbors were up in arms that they didn't want to see so much density. So, you know, what are the trade-offs? I think this council has to be prepared. So there's going to be a lot of backlash, a lot of push, but again, for the greater good, um, that might be just the price they have to pay. But, you know, again, um, affordability. I mean, I, I'm, I'm working with, I work with uh, lots of young couples getting started working with a couple right now, their budget is about $850,000. They want to buy a condo. And so really, if they're prepared, I've, I've taken them stuff that's, you know, maybe 10, 15 years old, that budget is going to get them maybe 750 square feet hmm. for, for them and their young family. And, and so, you know, there are, you know, I think trying to build uh, one fit, you know, something that is going to address everyone's needs is impossible. So we can if I have a mayor council and he seems to be indicating, you know, looking at a spectrum of, of building types. So yeah, maybe it's going to be some condos, maybe it's going to be some purpose built rental. Um, is there an opportunity for some non-market rental to be built? That I, I'm not too sure about. But then and the trade-offs again, I, I, I think we have to build quick. I think there has to be a lot of density. I think in neighborhoods that uh, it, they're really not going to be happy about it. 
we really we really do have no no option but to to fast track and to get the density in. But the question is, what is going to be built? Because that if if we don't have if we can't uh, rely on the CACs and the DLCs um, from from the upzoning, if we have to waive that, if the city has to waive those costs to incentivize builders to build the purpose built rental, then the monies that are needed to upgrade the aquatic center and the parks and the pools. Well, that's going to have to come from property taxes. So again, I I don't envy the the juggling act that that mayor and council are going to have to to address over the coming years. No, uh, not not at all. Uh, when we talk about the the seven points, and one of those being the the twenty six village areas, and that would be to allow for the construction of a lot of the housing you've talked about, construction of townhouses, of multiplex buildings, mixed use, low rise buildings, uh, and and building those. Uh, I mean, even the, we've seen some of that uh, houses that maybe they've taken an older house and made it uh, two or three units in the house and a laneway house. Those are still units though that are going for more than a million dollars. It's not as though that's really addressing, I mean, sure, some people can afford that, but it's not like that by, by doing, by bringing that level of density, it's really making it so we have this elusive, uh, affordable housing. Well, that's just it. Like, you, you know, it's more supply. Absolutely. And I, you know, it's, it's important, but is it, is it affordable supply? Um, you know, I, I remember being in a seminar a few years back and I'm sure the numbers are greatly inflated, but a few years ago we had a presentation and they said that our net immigration to the region was 40,000 a year. And, and this is going back a few years. So you have that many people growing into the air, coming into this area to settle. You know, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's a monumental task. And, you know, I think, yes, having like little village notes, I, again, I reflect on my time living in the West End, and it really did feel like a village. You know, you walked to the dry cleaners, you walked to the grocery store, you, you walked to the restaurant to meet your friends. We, you know, never used your car, except for if you had to venture out of the downtown. So if you could try to replicate some of that, but, you know, have, you know, in terms of affordability, is that, is that horse left the barn? And, uh, and what are the trade-offs? And so I think being as, as open and transparent about the trade-offs, I think, will be important. I think a lot of neighbors, neighborhoods are going to really be, uh, uh, what is the word, uh, a little uh, unpleased with, with some of the density that's gonna ha- that has to come into there. But I don't know, Jill, I, I, I worry that, uh, that, you know, with all of this, with the best of intentions, and I, and I believe the sincerity of, of our mayor in terms of pushing this uh, agenda forward, I'm just not convinced that it's, it's really going to address the affordability component. Right. And, and do you think the Broadway plan then is kind of the test case? I mean, it's going to take several years and it's, not, it's, going, it's going to be slow w- with all of that happening. But that is exactly what's going to be happening there is three-story three walk-ups, older buildings are going to be replaced in many cases with towers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I know I have a lot of good friends of mine that live in that part of the uh, in the city, and they're they're quite upset because it it inevitably is going to change the the neighborhood. Um, I know that when they did the West End plan, there was a lot of concern about trying to preserve as much of the current density as there is. And so, if you ever go into the West End, all the high density that was approved essentially was along Davie, along Alberni, and along Thurlow. So everything in that middle is kind of protected. You know, and so I, I don't know, if you, you know, again, everything's about trying to find the right balance. Um, but yes, I, I would say really allowing developers, we, we have to work with the private sector on this and we have to be able to, to the developers need to, to make a profit. They need, this is a business, right? And, and so they need to make the numbers work. And so in those trade-offs to make more affordable rental, again, 
we get back to, to square one. How do we then pay for all the infrastructure that we need? Because, you know, we, you guys have done many stories about the aging infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, our community centers, the pools, and all of that in Vancouver. That money has to come from somewhere. And, and that's, so, I don't know. I don't, uh, <laughs> like I said, I tip of the hat to Mayor and Council for taking it on because I think it has to happen. It has to happen quick. Uh, the density has to come in. But the devil's in the details. And, and there could be some serious trade-offs that that uh, are coming down the road for, for property owners, right? Uh, property taxes. Well, we will certainly continue talking about this, but we'll leave it there for today. Aaron, thank you so much for joining the show. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.